You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the B&H app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Weitz. Greetings and welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. On June 3rd and 4th of this year, we recorded at the 2018 Optic Outdoor Photo Travel Imaging Conference, hosted by B&H and sponsored by the likes of Sony, Canon, Fujifilm, Nikon, Panasonic, BenQ, Leica, and others. We were fortunate to speak with many wonderful photographers, including Joyce Tennyson, Keith Carter, and Seth Resnick, and other notable shooters. Over the course of the next few weeks, we plan on presenting a selection of these chats, but today we offer a conversation with National Geographic staff photographer Mark Thiessen. Mark is without a doubt a master of many disciplines. He directs the National Geographic's photo studio and has created images for all of Nat Geo's publications. For the Mothership magazine, he has completed stories on Peruvian mummies, the Mariana Trench, baseball in America, and nanotechnology, but perhaps his best-known story is the one he did on Russian smoke jumpers as part of a long-term personal project on wildfires. For this project, Mark even became a certified wildlife firefighter, and for 20 years, he has been spending his summers with the men and women who fight forest fires around the world and has captured incredibly dramatic images. We sat with Mark to discuss the technical, artistic, and emotional aspects of this type of photography. After a break, we invite back to the show Rod Clark of Wine Country Camera. Rod joined us at last year's Optic Conference to talk about his filter holder systems, and he's back this year to talk filters and catch up on how his boutique business has found some pretty impressive clients. But first, here's Mark Thiessen. We are being joined by Mark Thiessen, who is one of the few people on this planet who could call themselves a staff photographer for National Geographic. We need your autograph before you leave. Uh, Mark, your work is pretty amazing. And your specialty right now, and what we're going to be talking about is uh, massive fires and fire jumpers. And I'm looking at your pictures taken in the midst of infernos. It looks like hell. And I have one question for you. Are you crazy? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You are in some very intense situations there. Yes, but I'm also there with wildland firefighters who are smart about fire. Right. And have been through the training. I've been through the training. So that's how I get the access to get behind the lines, to get right on the front lines of these uh, forest fires, which are one of nature's fiercest forces. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the ones that we don't run away from. Hurricanes, tornadoes, batten down the hatches, floods, everybody leave. But with wildland fire, the residents of a neighborhood might be evacuated, mm-hmm. but there's a group of wildland firefighters that are going in to try and save those homes and save those communities and save those resources. I never well, thought of that. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, but can I ask though, I mean, is that the reason? Is it only because of the, the home? And not that this is a bad reason, of course, but I mean, forest fires happen in nature. They're part of the cycle. Why don't we just learn to let them burn themselves out? So we do. Yeah. In, a, in a lot of places, you never hear about them. Right. So Alaska, half the acreage that burns every year on average is in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And we never hear about these fires in Alaska. Millions of acres will burn in there, and it'll burn until it snows. Mm -hmm. And then when spring comes and you get a hot, dry day, the fire has smoldered underground, and it will come up on the green side, and you've got a fire again, believe it or not. It's called called holdover. So that's up in Alaska. Now, in the lower 48, um, we have some places where we let it burn in wilderness areas, but 
you know, there's a lot of places where you've got these Santa Ana winds, these big, hot, dry wind events, like in Southern California, where power lines will get knocked down. And single-digit humidities, um, it's 100 degrees because the wind has shifted in these Santa Ana wind conditions where it's blowing hot, dry air from the desert towards the ocean. Mm -hmm. Normally, the prevailing winds are from the ocean towards the desert, so it's kind of moist, cool air. And then you've got these, uh, you know, wind gusts, 40 to 50 to 60 miles an hour. Uh, I was in a helicopter flying over some fires, and it was 90 miles an hour. All the fire aircraft were grounded, and we were flying circles around this kind of neighborhood that was burning down, and, and then we had to leave because it was just getting too dangerous. I, I've flown from heli- shot from helicopters many, many times, and I imagine that if you're... This is a really crazy environment to fly in because you got all of this changing temperature of air must be pretty tricky between smoke and temperature shift to keep these craft going yeah it is and and, you know you have to it's really hard to hover yeah so that's why he was doing circles in this particular case and when we got in a certain orientation to the wind the helicopter would just kind of shake so we would just keep going um and and then i would get to a spot that was more stable to shoot and then we just keep so you've gone through trainings okay and and you're working with people who are trained professionals with fires all right so that's a whole other topic what's different in your camera bag than the average photographer considering the fact you're going into infernos what do you what precautions do you take what things do you take with you what tell us a little so bit about first that. what i'm wearing is what wildland firefighters are wearing okay so the 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 Yellow shirt and the green pants, Nomex. It's uh, when embers hit it, it won't. It's not fireproof by any means or fire resistant. It's just that when embers hit it, it won't um, spread like a cotton shirt would. It would get have threadbare clothing. Um, but what I, it's really hot and dry and dusty in those conditions. And changing lenses Ooh. is a problem. So I carry a camera body for every lens. So I have three camera bodies on me. Mm-hmm. I, I'm using a 100 to 400. I'm using a 24 to 70 and a 16 to 35. And I have those all on me. But I'm carrying a fire shelter, which all wildland firefighters carry. Uh, and I, so I'm basically following all the regulations that a wildland firefighter would have to, that you have to have when you're on the fire line. Plus I'm carrying my camera gear. But if, if something was to go wrong, you basically have what you need to burrow down and, and let it roll over you, essentially. Yeah, and I'm with people, right? right. I'm with wildland firefighters. Um, I went through, you mentioned fire training. I went through fire training so that I could be safe and I wouldn't be a liability to them because fire is very counterintuitive. They do not need to have to watch you while putting out a fire. No, and I don't want them to watch me, right. but then they also want me but, to make sure I'm watching their back. But are uh-huh. you on your own when you're there or are they assign somebody with you? I usually with go somebody? in with a crew. Okay. Normally, media would have to be escorted in mm-hmm. with a public information officer, and they would take the media in at like seven in the morning, and they would be gone by, take you out by 10 or noon, because the burning period is later in the day. Uh. And they don't want to, they want to make sure that there's nobody in there who doesn't need to be in there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for me, I go in, I go to the 5 a.m. briefing, I hook up with a fire crew that's going to be working on a part of the fire. Maybe it's the same crew I was with the last several days, kind of have a rapport with them. And then we go and we go into the fire that day, and who knows what will happen. Once that burning period happens, two, three, four, the inversion lift, the sun comes up, the sun is heating the, the southern slopes, so you get some terrain-driven winds that pick up, and it, the humidities drop, and then you're off to the races, and you, who knows what's going to happen. Wow. 
Um, so that's the thing is that you got it, but you have to be out there. And sometimes you're out there for three or four days and you're like, you know, I just haven't shot a picture that's really good yet. And then 10 minutes later, it all hell is breaking loose and you're coming up with all these great shots. So for me, it's just not shots, the fires, it's about the wildland firefighters themselves, these characters that do that. And they've all had bad experiences with media Mm. being Mm. misquoted, um, and, and so I'm always kind of fighting that, but I've done this for so many years that I've kind of developed a reputation and I did the story on Russian smoke jumpers way back in, it was published in 2002 and here it is 2018, everyone has seen it. And if I mentioned that story to them, even to a 20 year old, mm. I did a story on Russian smoke jumpers. They were like, what, they're like four right. when I did. <laughs> right. And they're, oh, that's they at our what, base. That that's at our into, base. Yeah. That's an awesome that's story. Good. That's, you know, yeah. so so that helps right. quite a bit right. too. Right. I actually remember that. I remember seeing that too. <laughs> what, <laughs> um, so, I mean, heat is obviously an issue when you're out there. What other technical issues do you have to deal with? Uh, I mean, safety aside and heat and all that stuff and dust, but are there any other different considerations you have that are specifically from shooting in a fire? So one of the tricks is smoke. There can be all kinds of dramatic pictures happening with flames and trees and the wind shifts and the wind is blowing the smoke between me and that those flames, I got nothing. It just looks washed out and hazy and you can't see anything. So I'm always paying attention to where the wind is blowing. And I always want to make sure that I can kind of work my way around that. Well, I imagine you have to pay attention to the wind regardless because if it could play a trick and all of a sudden (laughs) you got a problem. So I'm always trying to anticipate what's going to happen next. For the next three seconds, the next three minutes, the next three days. Am I, is this fire petering out? Is this fire starting, all the pictures starting to look the same? Every fire has its own personality. So maybe I want to go find another fire that's maybe within a half a day's drive where I have friends oh, who yeah. are running that fire who can kind of get me access and maybe that one's just picking up you running the fire, is it local community fire departments that take over or is there a state organization? There system? are national incident management teams uh-huh. that manage these fires. Okay. And they are made up of uh, Forest Service, BLM, uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs, even some some state guys and some local county people. And they, as a team that is assigned to manage that fire, and they'll be there for two weeks. And if that fire's still going, they rotate out and another team comes in to replace them. And, there, and there's teams that are handle a few, about 10 or 11 teams that handle these really big, big fires, just from a management point of view. And then there's a lot of type two teams that manage the the smaller. Now you say fires. they hand it off after two weeks. Is that just to get fresh eyes on it, or just to change everybody's? It's, so every, the you, it's really hard. It's it, during a busy fire season. It's hard to sustain. I'd imagine it's brutal. It's hard on you. to sustain yeah. because the days are like there's a briefing at five a.m. and you don't get back from the fire until like ten at night. All right, and then so you, you are and cooked then, figuratively and, then and, and literally. And then you're bedding down. Yeah, and you're up again at five a.m. for the briefing. And you go out to the fire and you do this again and you come out. So after two weeks, yeah. you're pretty fried. So they want everyone to have two days off at their home unit. It's not like they're sending you immediately to another fire, even though there's like, it could be fit. No, you got to have a break time. And right. I, I imagine you have to, you have to. So there's a management team and then there's the actual firefighters. Okay. And they're also on a two week rotation right. that is not synced up necessarily with the management team. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of coming and going. I was with a team uh, that, that there was a, fire season were really busy and they were a hotshot crew that I had hung out with for a week and they were extended. So they had done their 14, they're extended for another week to 21 days. 
and they didn't have a shower. Because, you, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night. Am I going to have a shower or am I going to sleep? Well, you're going to eat dinner and sleep. Yeah. And just get up and get dirty again the dirty next again. day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's, guys are like machines. They're men and women, and, they're, and they are solid. They are some of the best. One of my photo assistants, my best photo assistant that I use on different stories that are challenging, he knows nothing about photography. Mm. He's a former smoke jumper. Right. And you want like a MacGyver yeah. and someone who's unflappable in all situations, <laughs> will not complain about getting up early or going to bed late or not eating. And, and they're really special people and they've become lifelong friends of mine. Let me ask you about um, the colors of flames and, and how, you, how you work that, maybe some technical aspects of that and uh, also what you look for, I mean, to get variations. So one thing I've discovered is... Um, if you're shooting flames with the bright sun on it, they don't look very dramatic. Right. Mm. But if you have that black, thick black smoke column going up, blocking out the sun, and if you're able to photograph, the, that knocks the ambient light down. So now the flames are a light source. And I've got some pictures that I've shot that I'm going to show later on today that, uh, that kind of taught me how to light things because it taught me how to see where you're in a situation where homes are burning down and embers are flying and it's at noon but it looks like it's at night because this black smoke column has blocked out the sun it makes everything seem seem really dark so then the flames become the brighter light source you know watching a campfire in the middle of the day isn't as nearly as dramatic as watching it at night or at dusk it's the same thing and then i will also try and expose for not the flames, but what they are lighting up. So if I have a firefighter there who's doing a burnout operations, I'll overexpose a little bit than what my camera says so that those flames will be white hot. But I will be able to see um, the firefighter in the shadows and, and just capture that light. And I really like pictures where I can see the light source in the photo mm-hmm. and then also what that light source is falling on. So yeah. I'm kind of working in the shadows. And, you know, these digital cameras, I'm up at 6400 ISO all the time, and it just looks great. Mm-hmm. It just, I could have never done this stuff in the film days. Mm. Fire at night is beautiful, no matter no matter yeah. what happens. And do they work, I mean, will these guys be out there at night if necessary? Or? Yeah, there's oftentimes there's a day crew, and they will do a lot of burning at night. So one, the only way to really fight fire with fire in the middle of the forest is to burn out. So you start with a burnout operation is where you start with a river or a road, and maybe you improve that so that um, the other side of it doesn't have any overhanging limbs or anything. And they'll do that in the daytime when it's easier to see. And then at night when the humidities are down or the humidities are up and the wind is down is a good time to go in and burn that. And you might burn two miles. And what you're doing is burning all the unburned vegetation between that fire break, that anchor point, that river, that road, rocky outcropping, whatever it is, and the flaming front. And then what happens is that flaming front has a lot of heat going up, just like convection within your fireplace, and it draws in this fire that you've laid set on the ground to, to create that burnout situation. And so you've got fire going away from you rather than going towards you. Okay. And you always want to leave a fire where it's tied off. There's no loose ends. Right. It's not, you know, oh, it's the fire is coming there, but there's no rivers or roads. But it kind of went out, and it's like a football field away from the road. That's not good enough because it will catch on fire again on a hot, dry day. So you want to burn all that unburned vegetation and kind of leave it with a nice, clean line that's as wide as a road. There was a photograph that uh, Jason and I were looking at uh, just before we started recording, and 
again, I can't confirm if it was yours or not because we were just flipping through and all of a sudden it went away on my phone. It would look, it was a mother and several kids under, it looked like a wood bridge and everything's burning around them. And that looked frightening. So I know that picture you're talking about. And is it, was that, it a that, movie that, still? That, no, no. I know that picture you're talking about. It was not mine. That was shot in Australia, ah. I believe. And that is where Australia has these incredible fires. And um, it was running through that neighborhood and they jumped in the lake and went underneath the dock to kind of save themselves. It was frightening looking. Now, have you well, had your own similar situations to that where you've been dealing with people and all of a sudden hell's breaking out around you? So well, oftentimes where I am, people have um, been evacuated. All right. Right, by the time the fire gets Hopefully, there. That's what yeah. we do here. In Australia, it's different. In Australia, you can stay and defend your house. And the reason they do that is because they have had a lot of people die in last-minute evacuations. Uh. If, if, you know, like, like 173 people died in 2013 in the February 7th fires. On the hottest day, there were 1,400 fires in one day in Southeast Australia. Wow. Around Melbourne. And they have these wind-driven fires, like these Santa Ana winds. So, and then they don't have as nearly the resources that we have in places where we have those kind of winds that cause those kind of fires. So everyone's a volunteer and they have like one fire engine in a shed for 300 homes. Mm. And it's guys like us that are the volunteers. It's not these 20 year olds, you know, right. ripped guys and gals that are out there fighting the fire. It's old ripped guys like yeah. us. Yes, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, so a lot of people die in last minute evacuations. So you are... You, it's, it's, it's a shelter-in-place attitude. You're not just saving your house because this is your house and you want to save your house. Mm-hmm. It's you're saving yourself, Yeah, yeah. right? Okay. So the flames are coming, these hot, dry winds are coming, you're having this ember storm coming, and uh, in Australia, you will have put foil over the eaves, over that vent that goes into your attic because mm-hmm. a lot of embers get stuck in there and your house burns down from the inside, inside out, out you don't know. Yeah. And you take down the curtains, that are in the windows because infrared radiation can catch, your, catch those on fire and they're inside your house. You put wet towels around the door. You fill a bucket full of water and a mop and you cover yourself in kind of cotton clothing, long-sleeved cotton clothing. And then as the fire comes, there's going to be this ember shower, this shower of embers. And you're putting out all those embers. Your house just doesn't burst into flames like an explosion. What happens is one little ember, the size of a pencil eraser, will get stuck into underneath the wood windowsill or between the wood uh, trim on your house. And it's constant hot, dry winds. And then that starts to go and go and go. In Southern California, everyone's evacuated, so nobody knows this is happening. But in Australia, people are putting those out to save their house. And then 10 minutes later, the flaming front comes through. You go inside your house. Your house protects you from this radiant heat that would normally sear your lungs and kill you. Um, And then it sounds like a freight train coming on your house, people tell me, and then it moves on because all the fuel is being burned up and that fire moves on and then you might have another eight hours of ember storms as long as that wind picks up from the stuff, well, from the stuff that is burned up wind that's showering you. Imagine sitting through something like that. And I thought we had problems just finding a place to set up a podcast today. (laughs) That that is amazing. That's amazing. But that actually gets me to the question I wanted to ask is, and when you're faced with these, you know, these human stories and the human dramas that surround it, even families coming back to the house, do you... Do you yeah. cover those? Do you... I do cover them, yeah. and they are heartbreaking. But you know, it's amazing how resilient people are. Mm-hmm. When they come back, they've been evacuated from their neighborhood, 
in a rush. They've maybe had 10 minutes notice. And now they're, and they've been living in a high school gym for the last five days. And now they come back and they see their neighborhood and they just see their chimney standing there. Everything else is a pile of ash. And they see their neighbors for the first time and they embrace and they, and, and, and they, and they always look for something. They're looking for a fork. Right, They're the looking one for thing. a there's one something. something. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. nothing there. But they find a few trinkets. And you know, at the end, they're always very resilient. And this is something that I never forget. And it kind of touching me emotionally right now, just, mm. just where people, like they say, these are just things. These are just things. We have each other. We're all alive. People compare down. And that's what's really important. And And I have some pictures of moments like that that I always kind of look at and reminds me about really what is important in life. You're choking up a bit there. You mean yeah. this. You are. Yeah, it's, I'm catching it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was a nice nice moment to end, actually. <laughs> but but I, I guess I, I did kind of want to follow up with a similar question regarding the the smoke, you know, the, the firefighters and the smoke jumpers. I mean, and their stories. Do you do you follow their stories to some degree to see where they've come into this and into this occupation, how they handle it. The and we've also had some tragedies in the I mean, past couple of years. We've had some major hits, like what, 19 fighters were lost in one fire alone. Right, like especially down in Yarnell. Um, yeah, it was the Yarnell fire um, and the, the Granite Mountain Hot Shots. Yeah. 19 of them were done, were killed. I've become pretty involved in uh, the, the supervisor's uh, widow started a, a foundation for that. And, uh, and I've donated some money and, and uh, helped them out with that. And the fifth year anniversary is coming up uh, June 28th. Is it five years already? It's been five wow, years. Okay. You want to share that, that information? Yeah, yeah so it's the Eric Marsh uh, uh, Wildland Firefighter Foundation. Okay. And, um, uh, and it's, it's just a, they give 100% of the money donated to them to the families of fallen wildland firefighters. And um, that's really helpful because, you know, a lot of them don't have insurance. Some of them, depending on what agency they work for, they might just be seasonal. Mm. They might not have life insurance benefits mm. Mm. and they're out there putting it all on the line. And uh, she and they're all young. Some of them have got, you know, some of these guys that burned up in um, five years ago had little babies and stuff. So, um, you know, it's, it's a tragedy and, and, and these things happen and, and, you know, it's, it's, there's always going to be a level of risk. I'm always surprised at how though safe there is this culture of safety in wildland firefighting. Nobody's out there being a cowboy. Decisions that are made, which fires to, to tackle, is it always around about the, the surrounding real estate and this, not the real estate itself, the value, but the people and the homes. I mean, are there ones that, that they're just gonna they're gonna let them burn, or they have to make a decision and say, okay, we're gonna, you know, we have too many homes close to here. Is that the is that really what's going on? Is it about protecting homes and property. It's about and, protecting, yeah, yeah, homes and property and assets yeah. in these areas that are very ur- urban areas, rural areas, where where like what we had in Santa Rosa last year, yeah. and in, in Sonoma County in, in Northern California. Um, it, it that's that's what it's about, um, and they make their decisions based on that. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard. There are some neighborhoods, I've been in neighborhoods up in the mountains in Southern California where it was too dangerous to fight fire in there. There was one road going in. You couldn't back a fire engine around to turn around. There were um, wooden power poles everywhere, and some of them had burned through. 
and were falling down. I could, I was the only one in there shooting pictures of kind of what was going on. And there were propane tanks exploding and ammunition going off as garages burned. And it was just a really nasty situation. And, you know, you, if you live in a place like that, you want it to be seductive to firefighters. You want them to go like, all right, so there's a, we, there's two, uh, two ways in and out. We can turn fire engines around in there. There's no obstructions. There's no exposed propane tanks. There's, you know, all these other things. And, um, you know, so no one was in there putting out fire right. in that neighborhood. Right. And a bunch of homes burned up. And, no, and that's make, yeah. Happens. Think about the propane tanks and things like that, Jesus. And so they usually they mm-hmm. vent. Yeah. There's a, a, a vent when they get too hot. But boy, it's loud and it's scary because there's a 12-foot blue flame coming out of this thing. Mm. And you don't even want to be around it. Right, right. And how much of the year do you spend working shooting fires? <laughs> oh, I spend, uh, you know, sometimes it's it's a few weeks, sometimes it's a few months. Mm-hmm. A year, it all depends what's going on. Mm-hmm. I'm doing a, just finished up a story on Alaska smoke jumpers that's going to be running probably July. We're not sure exactly the date of, in 2019, July or August, something like that. I spent Maybe two about summers. A year from now. Yeah. 2019. Okay. I spent two yeah, summers in uh, Fairbanks where they co- have 75 smoke jumpers that cover the entire state. Wow. And they get parachuted into the middle of nowhere mm. and some beautiful places. And did you pitch that story? Is that did you pitch that story to them and said this is a good one? Yeah. Uh, or they, yeah. yeah this yeah. is something that nobody has covered. This is as close as we get to Russian smoke jumping in the United States. <laughs> smoke jumping in Alaska is a whole nother story than smoke jumping in the lower forty eight. So what do you take pictures of when you just want to chill? <laughs> That's a certain pun intended there, I guess. But seriously, when you, what you do is pretty intensive and physically and mentally exhausting, I would imagine. And you're putting, your, you're putting yourself a thousand percent into this. This is, wears you down. What do you, what do you do to have fun with the camera? The, <laughs> the firefighting photography is my passion, right? Okay. That's, I started doing that on vacations, right? My other responsibilities at National Geographic is I'm also a studio photographer there. And I also do a lot of science stories. So this one on human performance that will be coming out in the July issue of the magazine. And I just did a story that's in the June issue on Lost Colony of Roanoke. So there's a lot of artifact photography in there. So I'm a bit of a Swiss Army knife in a drawer full of fine cutlery. We have a lot of photographers that specialize in just underwater, just science, just portraits, just wildlife. And I kind of do a lot of... So your next assignment is your way of chilling from the last assignment. It's really what it works out to. It's like, so, that's good. Yeah. So for me, for me, I, you know, I photograph my kids' volleyball games and my kids' baseball games. And that's kind of what I do. I'm using this really high-end now, equipment. Now, you said that you actually have gone taking pictures of fires on vacation. Did the kids ever say, Dad, not another fire vacation? <laughs> I mean, no, no. <laughs> no, you know, they don't. That was, that was actually before I had kids. Oh, okay, all right? right. Because when I started this project, it was a personal project that I started. Ah, going okay. through fire school on my own. Oh, wanting, interesting, okay. Wanting to, um, so I went through the five-day training that all other wildland firefighters get. And I got that in Idaho City, Idaho. And then every year I take a refresher course and I just would go back every summer. I developed a lot of good friends in the wildland fire community. I'd spend two weeks. Sometimes those oh, two so weeks, you nothing would go on. seeds for this. That's even better. Yeah, okay. you know, I think it's important to do that. I yeah. think you always need a personal project no matter what you're doing. And this was perfect because it was seasonal. It was something I could go back to year to year. And it was something that as I developed relationships with people, it helped me every year because I have so many friends in the wildland fire community and it's a very small world. Mm-hmm. And they really... Uh, have have helped me out a lot, and you know I make sure I send them pictures. Sure, nobody is getting 
awesome pictures of themselves fighting fire than than the ones who are pulling hauling around the National Geographic photographer. I, I imagine that's pretty head, heady stuff to have to pull out of National Geographic. That's me taking pictures in the fire. That's great. Um, what what kind of stories are coming out in the next few months that listeners might want to check out in National Geo? Um, let's see. Well, the the most the the June issue is our plastics issue, and that's probably the biggest thing I can talk about is what we've got happening right now. So the cover story and most of the rest of the magazine is devoted to plastics and how they have impacted the environment, our, and, the environment yeah. and our world. That uh, the cover shot is incredible, right? With yeah, the that, iceberg in the plastic bag. Yes, yeah. everyone's yeah. take a look at that. Yeah, yeah. 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 That, that is, and that's that's a fifty-four page story, one of the largest stories we've done in a long Ooh. time. And that really hits all aspects of that. And that's getting some momentum on its own. And that is is something that we are really good at. Where we're able to kind of move the dial a little bit. Right, right, right. You know, by by not by this movement to kind of get rid of single use plastics and straws is kind of the first Plastics is an interesting thing. It's only like fifty years because they, and you go back fifty years and this was not an issue at all. <laughs> but now it's like it's incredible how this stuff has invaded the environment. It doesn't those, go away. It doesn't go away, correct. Once you make it, it doesn't go yeah. away. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of alternatives that are coming up out there to kind of go with that. And that's a, that's a first world problem. Right. I've been in Indonesia where you know, the whole village is up, built up on stilts. And because of the way that the tides come in, and you look down below and it's a sea of garbage that all their foods come in and everything like that, where before their food would be wrapped in banana leaves. Mm-hmm. And now it's the sea of plastic underneath there. And there, they don't, it doesn't bother them, right? Because they're not to the point that we are where we can see, they're just kind of worried about where their next meal's coming from. Right. So it's a first world problem. And that's where um, hopefully we can draw attention to this issue, create a lot of awareness and kind of get some momentum moving for change in that area. And it's true. I mean, this, this is a huge problem we have now with, with all this plastics, but uh, yeah. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is finding a, or getting in the right place at the wrong time, right? Getting into that spot where, they're, where you're close to fire, where there's firefighters working it and where things are happening. Because believe it or not, Sometimes the fire's raging and it's too dangerous. We're not going to put any people in there. So I just get smoke coming over the ridgeline. Yeah. Right? So, and, or maybe all the air resources have been taken away from that fire to go to another fire. So now they don't have any, they won't put people in because those air resources are there as safety as well. Mm-hmm. They're buckets, they're helicopters doing bucket work. But in case things happen and go bad, they can drop some buckets around these guys too. So then they won't put people in. So sometimes, believe it or not, it's really hard to sometimes get there. And it's a lot of intuition and it's a lot of luck, but you can't do it from sitting in an office in Washington, D.C. It's like fishing. You have to be out there. Right. (laughs) You know, it's funny you say that. So one of the things that I always say is, um, it's like people, any pictures we have in our magazine have to be incredible. So it's like National Geographic says, okay, we need you to, to catch a trophy bass. And you can go any place to do it and use any equipment you want to. Okay, so I'm going to go research, find out where the best lakes are, what is the best boat to have, the best fish finder, the best trolling motor. Where can I find a good plastic bass? <laughs> <laughs> the best line, the best bait. And in the end, yeah. 
the bass doesn't bite your hook. It don't matter. It doesn't matter. That's right. So, so I have to make sure all the things I can control so I can be out there so that I can be lucky. And I that's, like that. And that's the hardest part about this. That's a great answer. Mark, Thiessen, thank you so much for joining us today. Terrific talking with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Okay. We're going to take a short break and be back with Rod Clark of Wine Country Camera. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at BH Photo Video, hashtag BH Photo Podcast. All right, we have a return visitor from last year's Optic. We are speaking with Rod Clark of Wine Country Cameras. And uh, you guys make some neat filter systems, as we talked about last year. Uh, some nice, nice stuff, and well-made, too. Very California-ish. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're beautiful. You know, and uh, we, have, uh, we know a lot of people actually own this and use the, uh, your, your gear. What's some new toys you got? Do you have some new things here for us? Well, um, thanks for having me back, by Pleasure. the way. Um, yeah, this past year has been incredible for Wine Country Camera. Um, our growth has just been fantastic. People are really into the product. People are really dig it. Um, we've got a whole new line of filters mm -hmm. since we've last spoken. Um, we came out with a line of, of neutral density filters that are uh, modern. It uses a modern vapor deposition coating rather than the old style dye with resin. And so, the consequently, you get uh, no color shift. So even wow. ten stops, I, I have pictures on my website that are they're not doctored. They're just you know I, I took them out of camera, I made an adjustment to the to the one without the filter, and then I put the filter on, and I made a copy and paste of the identical adjustments. You can't tell the difference. There's no color shift whatsoever. So we use uh, we use shot ultra white. Uh, Glass, which is the finest optical that, material we can get. It's as good as it can get. It's mm -hmm. as good as it gets. Um, they're made in Japan, um, so they're not, you know, they're not like some fly-by-night shop at a, you know, Shanghai. They're really amazing optical quality. Um, I shoot a Phase One primarily mm -hmm. because I want to see and test the filters at uh, 100 megapixels and see. If they can, if with, there's a problem you, yeah. at 100 meg, you see it. <laughs> you see it, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. It, and, it's not, it's not pretty if there's anything wrong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they've been great. Uh, we have a full line of, of um, graduated filters now. Mm -hmm. So we've got two and three stops of hard edge and soft edge, um, and we've got in the works a large uh, holder system, 150 millimeter holder system that'll be available this summer. Um, I get a, I get a request every day. I get an email. Hey, can you support the? And then you you name off the lenses, right? The mm -hmm. Sigma. What is it? The the fifteen thirty, the Nikon fourteen twenty four, the the Schneider um, thirty five leaf shutter. Everybody wants these wide angle, ultra wide angle. So we we actually are coming up with um, the the systems designs ready to go, and we're using a type of three D printing. Um, called Fusion Jet for the uh, for the adapter rings, because you can you can put a complex structure inside of another complex structure with a 3D printer that you can't do with a mold, and the, it's hmm. like it's like a ship in a bottle, right? Okay. So what we're able to do is to create a complex clamping mechanism, and then shield the entire thing with a light tight enclosure, right? So. You know, you can put your adapter ring on, have this really cool tightening mechanism, and the thing's completely light tight. And then it slips. Then the adapter attaches to the 
to the holder system. So it's, it's going to be really cool. Do you use 3D uh, for a lot of your products? It's just going to be for the adapter rings. Okay. And that's going to allow us to, to, to for one thing, to do um, interesting and complex things, but also be reactive to market as as mm. new um, as mm. new lenses come out. Okay. Right? Oh, that's okay. great. Yeah. And, so and where do you do that? That's, where, is that... That's actually made in America, made in San Diego. Are your customers primarily uh, still or video or an even mix? So um, I get... Assuming you know. I get a few people interested in video. But, you know, with video, there are some really great products out there. Mm -hmm. They're obviously at a higher price point, like Bright Tangerine or uh, you know, RE Matte Boxes or whatever. Um, and But, you know, those are kind of two or $3,000. Um, I'm really... My focus is on photo. That's where my passion is mm -hmm. right now. That's where I want my focus for my customers to be. I think of us as a tribe. And um, I get some people like Vince Laferre, you know, famous, you know. Yeah, sure. He's been a guest on the show. Yeah, yeah. He, he has three of my systems, uses them on the Movi all the time. Um, and so there's definitely a market there, but I'm not actively pursuing it. You know, if I catch a, catch a few curveballs, I'm good, you know. I'm good with that. But really, my focus is photography. So I think one of the things that's kind of neat about your product uh, is, is that it performs a function, and it performs it well, and it's a good product. But the design of your products have an aesthetic that usually you don't see people putting interesting aesthetics into a filter system. Right. The whole design yeah. of it, it, there's a personality to it, and it's like you look and you go, "I want to use that." Yeah. It's, a, <laughs> it's timeless, and and honestly, it's functional. Yeah, the, the, all the touch points are made from wood, and uh, one of the things that has been a real transformation for me is is my love of photography has really blossomed. And I, mm. I've been a photographer since I'm ten years old, but I'm shooting at a level now that I've never done before. Mm -hmm. And I use my own product all the time, like I'm getting high on my own supply, right? Mm -hmm. And I love it. And I was in Jackson Hole. I go to Jackson Hole about five times a year. And I was, you know, it's freezing cold, 20 degrees, the sun's coming up. As soon as the sun starts to hit the wood, the wood starts to warm up. And it's warmer than the air, so it's warm to the touch, you know. And you go, that's why I put wood on there, because, <laughs> because it's, it has this great thermal stability. And, you know, you touch aluminum, you go, oh, that's like biting cold. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's beautiful, but it's really, the, it's functional. And you know, it's interesting. You're talking about designing a product that you're manufacturing and using. Um, I have another friend uh, who designed uh, the Platypod Pro, a little flat plate for mounting cameras to ground level and stuff. And he, it, it was it was th a thing in his head for years. He said, I'm going to make this. He's a pediatrician. He says, I'm just going to make this already. And he's doing very well. And he sells them through B&H and all over the planet. And it's the same thing. He goes, I get to use something I designed. And I'm seeing other people using it and really enjoying using a product. Yeah. And that's got to be so rewarding. Oh, I, I get emails all the time. People just tell me, oh, look what I did. You know, That's fulfilling. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's really great. All right. So, Rod, thank you for joining us again. And uh, maybe yeah. we'll see you next year with more more yeah. exciting products. Well, I love this optic event. By next year, we're definitely going to have the, the large holder system. And uh, I might even have some circular filters. Just Ooh, saying. Yeah. Uh -oh. So, uh -oh. yeah. Another reason to live. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for those, for the, if you're listening and you're not yet, and you're totally confused about what we're talking about, go to Wine Country Cameras and take a look at the products that Rod's producing. They've got some really interesting filter systems. They are beautifully made, they are thoroughly functional, and they're gorgeous. Rod, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on board. Take care. 
Thank you, Rod, and thanks to Mark and all of the photographers who joined us at Optic. Keep an eye out for upcoming conversations with Vincent Versace, Adam Morelli, and Mark's fellow Nat Geo photographer, Cece Brimberg. One last thing, be sure to subscribe to the B&H Photography Podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And leave us a review on iTunes or on our B&H Explorer landing page, where you could also see some of the incredible wildfire photographs by Mark Thiessen. In the meantime, for John, Jason, and myself, thank you so much for joining us today.